Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast that tinkers under the hood of the paranormal and tries to find some sort of meaning in uh, the strange and unusual. And it is a bit of a strange and unusual week at the moment. We're in the UK in lockdown two. Uh, right outside my window, I can hear there are fireworks going off celebrating somebody who nearly blew up Parliament a few hundred years ago. And there's something big in the States, apparently. So with that in mind, I think you've got something quite topical to talk about, Peter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good intro for it, actually. I mean, when this goes out, um, may, maybe the thing in the States, which is massive, is, is all over and everybody's all happy and lovely and joining hands, but we'll see. Um, but it's interesting you pick those things because uh, I've picked a topic today that's, that does kind of relate to that. Okay. And the reason I picked this topic was we've done a number of podcasts. Uh, we featured a lot of stories from people, but usually those stories involve only one person or maybe a couple. When we had Ruth Roper Wild on, you know, it's people driving as a couple in a car and they see something strange. And what I started thinking was... And we've said it before, the problem with those stories, whether people have genuinely seen something weird or not, it's very easy for a sceptic to dismiss them. Because hmm. they'll say, you know, they're either making it up or there's something wrong with them. Or, yeah, they think they saw something, but they saw something else. They were just mistaken. Or, you know, God, they were on drugs. Or whatever it is, there's so many routes when it's just one or two people who've seen something where it becomes really easy to dismiss. So that started me thinking about, well, what about those examples where it's been more than one or two people who've seen something weird, strange, or paranormal, or done something weird, strange, and paranormal? Um, and the only way that those experiences get written off often, well, there's two, really, I think. There's some kind of mass conspiracy theory, like some government plot where they've poisoned the water and everybody's gone crazy or something a, a psychological thing which everybody refers to as mass hysteria so today i thought i want to talk about mass hysteria i shall try to remain non-hysterical i know and I, I, it's weird it feels like talking about what you're saying of you know the the process of the election in the states coronavirus you know, it seems like the world is kind of ripe for a bit of mass hysteria at the moment. So um, maybe it's good timing or bad timing, depending on the way you look at it. Um, I'm going to get on to some of the kind of medical definitions around mass hysteria in a minute. But I thought to give everyone an idea of something that has been put down by sceptics as a mass hysteria event... Um, I pick a real famous one, so I, I won't. And and that one is uh, the Point Pleasant Mothman, hmm. which is a very very famous case. There are, um, I mean, there's been a, a a movie starring Richard Gere, which kind of features it. It's not completely accurate to what happened, but it's pretty close. Uh, there's a brilliant documentary called The Mothman of Point Pleasant, which I think is on Netflix. Um, so if you, I'm going to give you a basic outline of what happened for those who haven't heard this story or for those who it's familiar with. Uh, but I would, if you want to delve deeper, I would recommend that documentary, uh, The Mothman of Point Pleasant on Netflix to check that out. But so this, this whole thing started in November of 1966 when uh, a winged creature was seen. And this around the area of Point Pleasant. And this creature was basically the size of a man, uh, but it had big wings, hence the Mothman name, uh, and glowing red eyes. So this West Virginia town in the States experienced this phenomena for basically roughly a year, just over a year, that this Mothman was seen. And it started with one witness, but then it ended up with, you know, multiple witnesses in the area seeing this thing, both in terms of uh, at night where it would be, say, flying above their car, 
people saw it perched on the side of buildings or derelict buildings. I think that from my memory, there was quite a chilling case of during the daytime, a woman looked out onto her front garden and this thing was just standing there looking through her window at her. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember that, yeah. Yeah. And and so this, this was witnessed and talked about by multiple people in the area and some really credible witnesses, including a police officer who said he saw it flying above his police car from, again, from my memory. And the other weird thing about this story, which makes it just incredible, is there a, there's a kind of folklore that says if this type of creature appears, it's going to predict or it only appears around the time of a disaster that's about to happen. I guess a bit like a kind of, what, a, a high-end platinum card banshee, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> flying banshee. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, disaster did hit the town roughly after a year of this thing appearing when the Silver Bridge collapsed. So this was a bridge that was across the river. Uh, I think it happened on December the 10th uh, in 1967. And people were starting to do all their Christmas shopping and stuff. So the, the bridge was really packed with cars. There was a structural collapse and 46 people were killed. And then from that moment the creature wasn't seen again, which also added to this folklore of this creature appears either feeding off the doom that's about to happen or to predict the doom that's about to happen. And, of course, disaster struck. So it it was really is a massive paranormal story one of my favorite stories actually in terms of intrigue and the fact that there was this bizarre ending to it but it has been written off by skeptics as a mass hysteria event that somehow the locals got into this weird state where they weren't seeing this thing but it spread almost like a virus around the community and everybody was seeing this creature everywhere so there's reports of a a thing called a sandhill crane which is a massive bird that may have been in the area which may have sparked this whole thing off but i think it's fascinating that if it isn't a paranormal phenomena how quickly and impactful it was on that community yeah and as well like I've seen a few massive birds in my time and I don't mistake them for winged humanoids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there has been fairly unsubstantiated theories, conspiracy theories, that it was the American government who'd somehow were trying some experimental drug out on the town and everybody was tripping out for a year. But, you know, we often say this, uh, uh, to what end? I can't... (laughs) Had to do it yeah. for that longer period, and then the fact there was a disastrous event at the end of it, just it didn't, that doesn't make sense to me. No, well, there's also a lot of other bits and pieces to the story that um, come into play, aren't there? It isn't just the sighting of the Mothman. It is um, John Keel, who obviously wrote the definitive book on it. There's a whole lot of stuff about. Um, uh, entities or possibly people pretending to be him showing up at places saying that they are him uh, a mysterious kind of men in black character called yeah. Ingrid Cold there's a lot uh, there's a lot of high strangeness going on and the other thing about it is that there is I now like with all of these things it's a bit like we Jeff the Mongoose there is a photograph of what is supposed to be the Mothman on the side of that bridge, but it's wholly unconvincing. On the other hand, like, what is it? It could could conceivably be a bit of tarpaulin or something, but, yeah, it, it there's, a, there's a lot of high strangeness. Yeah, but it, it got me thinking that, okay, if we go with this theory of mass hysteria, that there is some... Because it seems so unlikely doesn't it the whole mass hysteria thing that Hmm. suddenly these group of people just all start buying into this delusion effectively whatever for whatever reason that sparked it 
which is completely fascinating. So I, 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 we've got um, we've got a lot more stories to go, including a group of people who spontaneously started meowing, some who started biting, groups of people who started spontaneously laughing, uh, dancing, a, a, a town that danced itself to death, it's famously known, a man who was convicted for killing a ghost through mass hysteria, and people who caught a, a, a virus through their TV set by watching a TV programme. Uh, but let's look at some of the medical explanations for it first. So I found a very good article uh, in on a website called Medical News Today, which was all about this thing of mass hysteria. So it's also known as collective obsession behaviour or conversion disorder. So in a seminal article, uh, a Professor Simon Wesley published a paper on this topic. So he was from King's College London in the UK. Uh, He notes that mass hysteria has been used to describe such a wide variety of crazes, panics and abnormal group beliefs that defining it is particularly tricky. Mm. Still, he suggests that in characterising a phenomenon as an instance of mass hysteria we should aim to guide ourselves by five principles. So we're just going to go through the five principles. And I think all the stories that we feature today fit into his five principles of mass hysteria. So his first principle is that it is an outbreak of abnormal illness behaviour that cannot be explained by physical disease. So there's no actual illness that has affected these people, is number one. Number two, that it affects people who would not normally behave in this fashion. That it excludes symptoms deliberately provoked in groups gathered for that purpose, such as when someone intentionally gathers a group of people and convinces them that they are collectively experiencing a psychological or physiological symptom. <clears throat> so I read that a bit like... Uh, I don't know if you're in a cult and a cult leader said the spaceship's going to come down and take us all away. People would buy into that because they're almost predisposed to. And the per- their purpose for gathering to hear this person speak is interconnected with that. Right, I say yes. Yeah. It excludes collective manifestations used to obtain a state of satisfaction unavailable singly. So, such as a fad, crazes, or a riot. So, I thought a good example of this is kind of like a football crowd or a sports crowd, you know, and people getting. I've seen a few bits on group behavior and riots, which is just amazing how quickly you can get swept away by other people's behavior in that situation. So, to a simplistic level, you know, it's like the people at a football match who all support one team. Somebody who would not say boo to a goose who suddenly gets involved in some mass punch-up with a team of rival fans over the fact that somebody missed a penalty. Do you know what I mean? The, the right. premise is so bizarre that somebody would do that, but there's something about group, so it excludes that. I thought this was interesting, that the link between the individuals experiencing the obsessive behaviour must not be coincidental, meaning, for instance, they are all part of the same close-knit community. Okay. Which which made me think of the Mothman. Yeah. Yeah. So even if they don't know each other, it can Mm -hmm. still infect them if they're sort of in the same locale or the same club, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and And actually, a lot of... I'm just thinking all of these cases, actually, uh, all seem to fit that that definition, whether it's a town um, or a group, and I'll get on to some of those in a minute, but who have, no, like you said, don't know each other, but are connected in some way with either location or through belief systems or something else, and that's led to it happening. I'll get on to what might trigger some of these effects uh, 
from a non-paranormal point of view in a minute. But let, this this has been going on for a while. Hmm. Uh, mass hysteria. We may understand maybe some of the behaviour a bit more now. And I've got two incredible cases of hysterical nuns from the 15th century. <laughs> oh, you've come to the right place for an hysterical nun story. Yeah, exactly. You really have. So let's start with the first. So uh, 15th century convent in France where a nun strangely started meowing like a cat. Okay. This is before no Hello Kitty as well, right? Right, absolutely yeah, before okay. Hello Kitty. No reason, no reason for it. She just one day started meowing like a cat. And then it quickly spread through the other nuns in the convent. So, you know, it started with her, then another one joined in. Uh, and then all of the nuns in the convent started meowing on a daily basis for no reason. And are they are they speaking their normal language as well, or are they just meowing? And more to the point, do they want feeding? Is that what it is? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I, I I haven't. I, well, they weren't doing it all day at this stage, at the early stages. So I'm assuming some other types of communication were going on rather than just meowing. But it's interesting you make that point because over time the nuns started to uh, put together a theme or structure to the whole thing. So they would meet at the same point every day and gather, uh, and then they would start meowing for hours on end. But it would always start at the same time every day. That's really mental. Yeah. Yeah. And like, how old are these nuns well i'll come on to that after i've done the second story actually because oh, okay. i think you, you may have kind of touched on something there in, in an inadvertent way don't not touching the nun but in, you know what i'm saying um the, so this went on for a while the, the really funny bit of this story is the uh the residents of the town where the convent was as you can imagine got pretty hacked off with this yeah, yeah. Hours absolutely. on ends. Loads of nuns together, meowing all day long, right? That is annoying. So they got in contact with the authorities and said, you've got to stop this. Now, bearing in mind this is the 15th century, uh, the powers that be sent in a group of soldiers uh, to break it up, and they, <laughs> they threatened to beat the nuns if they didn't stop. And suddenly this whole thing kind of fizzled out after that. Well, you knew they weren't really cats because they would have just swiped them round the face and run yeah, off. Yeah, they'd have gone, whatever, yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, okay, so that worked. Yeah, that worked. Um, but I've got a second story about nuns from the 15th century. Uh, not in France this time, but not that far away in Germany. Okay. So in this one... Again, it started with one nun, a singular nun, um, who started to bite her fellow sisters. So she just started sinking her teeth into them. And just like the meowing in France, these nuns in Germany, it's, it spread. A second nun started biting along with the first. And over time, all the nuns started biting each other all the time. But, okay. but this one gets even weirder. This biting infection spread to other nunneries in other countries. What? So it, it spread. So it spread from Germany, and then it spread in other convents in Holland and Rome and elsewhere. How, I mean, how did they know? Like, there's no social media like yeah yeah i don't know that's a really good question unless some kind of i mean i guess they was there must have been letters being well were there i don't know 15th century I don't, yeah, really <laughs> dear good fellow question. nun have you yeah. tried biting because <laughs> yeah. it's really good yours sincerely <laughs> sister mary 
Apologies for the blood on yes, the parchment. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> P.S. Nom nom nom. Yeah. I mean, okay. I but I guess I guess there would be, like, if they're all from the same religion, maybe there is a sort of a cross pollination. But that is um, that is a strange thing. Is there any mention of, like, were any of them saying why they were biting or no? Or meowing, neither. I mean, there were lots of theories, as you can imagine, that were touted at the time, uh, including, oh, it's some weird medical, you know, some weird infection that they've got, illness. Um, but again, especially in the second one, how that would have spread to Germany, Rome, other places, I don't know. Uh, ov- there's the obvious one that, well, obvious too. Some people said it was a message from God, and some people said it was a message from the devil. Both are obscure, if that's what it is. Yeah, but it's generally put been put down to mass hysteria. And and how did they how did they bring an end to the biting? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I couldn't find out how the biting ended. They just ate each other. Yeah, I guess they were really sore. <laughs> <laughs> they just gave up. It but, also yeah, sounds it's... like a suspiciously good excuse. What are you two doing in there? Oh, just biting. <laughs> well, the the, I, the best theory I did read about it from a psychological point of view was in those days, not people became nuns when they were quite young, as you said, you alluded to. Yeah. Also, you know, it's a pretty tough time, the 15th century. And families would often force their daughters into convents because they knew they'd be fed and looked after and have, you know, under a a feeling they'd have a better life in a convent than they would in the horrible outside world as it was at the time, especially if they were poor. So there is this theory that actually a lot of the nuns, the women who were in these nunneries, didn't want to be there and were kind of almost going... They didn't have some big vocation to be nuns. And it's quite a regimented lifestyle that almost it was a way of maybe even subconsciously rebelling Mm -hmm, or releasing mm -hmm. the oppression that they were feeling. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, I don't know. It's just I, I was trying to picture myself as a nun, which I did. Please, yeah, Ben's just pulled the <laughs> weirdest face I've ever seen. Um, but if I was in their position and I had been, you know, I was fifteen years old, let's say, and I'd been forced to become a nun when I didn't want to be, and I was in a very strict environment. And one day I just thought, for a laugh, I'll just meow like a cat. Yeah. And you know what I mean? It, you could see how that could become a release. And you could see with somebody else who kind of go, well, that looks fun. I'm going to join in. And then it, it's almost a rebellion that can't be, you know, quashed maybe by the people who run the convent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a fairly... I mean, it's not as destructive as biting. It's just meowing and and if you're told to stop and you stop then you probably realize what's what's going on the game's up yeah yeah it's pretty catastrophic at the time though yeah well then i mean the the biting one kind of yeah is is weird that it spread to other places i think yeah and that's you know it's a more extreme act i guess than the uh the meowing but Fascinating. Um, they were both roughly around the same time in, you know, fairly close proximity in terms of, you know, France and Germany. Not, you know, in those days it was a long way away, but it's not like they were in different sides of the world. So I thought it was fascinating, both those yeah, stories. I really like that. So are there examples of ones where they didn't stop when they were told to? Uh not nuns, well, the, but just other other cases. Other stories like that. No, they do. Most of them do seem to, but some of them, 
some of these examples, and we'll get onto one a little bit later, that had quite serious consequences oh. before it stopped. But let's go on to, uh, and I'm not going to be able to say this properly, the laughing epidemic in Tanzania, which is now Tanzania. Okay. So, so this is a relative, it's not the 15th century, this is relatively more recent. Uh, this was in 1962. And this was a, an epidemic of laughing, which started in a girls' school uh, and spread to other communities, eventually affecting thousands of people. Thousands. So we're not talking about handfuls, we're talking about thousands. Gosh. So, started in a girls' school. Symptoms included laughing and crying that lasted from a few hours to up to 16 days constantly. What, awake? Yeah. Or, well, it depends on your definition. I don't know if definition of constantly means you didn't, you obviously couldn't not sleep for 16 days, but I think pretty much your waking hours were spent laughing, I would, I would interpret it as. Uh, the laughing fits were also accompanied by other weird behavior, such as extreme restlessness, running. Running was a big thing that they'd be laughing and feel the need to run. Um, and sometimes violence. It sometimes ended up in brawls and fighting. Uh, there's no evidence of it being connected to any traditional illness. So if we go back to our five key principles, it's not an illness that people have contracted. The outbreak lasted for several months uh, with over 14 schools were closed during that period because they couldn't get anything done in the schools because all of their pupils were laughing constantly. Uh, There have also been reports of similar incidents, including one in Lancashire, England in 2015, so even closer. This was a smaller outbreak, but again, in a a laughing incident in a school. Other examples, it happened in Kosovo, Afghanistan and South Africa. We've mentioned earlier what could be the cause of these things and it's theories with this one and with a lot of the other ones that it's triggered as a reaction to anxiety or stressful situations that it is some kind of release as we were talking about the nuns earlier that and anyway i i don't know if they the timings of some of them but i just thought it was interesting that kosovo came up Afghanistan and South Africa all came up because, you know, they have examples of war or violent situations that, you know, you can see how some community tension would build up, especially if you're young and dealing with that kind of stress, that in a school, like the nuns with the meowing, maybe it's some kind of release was the only thing I could think of. Yeah, so th- that's interesting that um, that one starts in a school as well because that's another sort of formal setting like the nunnery. Um, yeah, the, yeah. There's there's some sort of psychological suggestion there somewhere that I'm not sure the cause of, but it it it, it feels naturally like there's a reason there. Yeah, and I've got a quote from. <laughs> Uh, Christian Hempelsman of Texas University uh, on this story. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I, I won't go into the whole article, but he seemed quite upset that people might headline this incident as, you know, laughter is contagious because it spreads oh, yeah, to thousands yeah, right. of people. Uh, and he talks about the, the stress he thinks that causes the phenomena. He says... It has to, the stress has to express itself bodily. It gives the person a way to say, see, I'm suffering, something is going on. I'm not just depressed or withdrawn. Mm-hmm. I see. So it, you know what I mean? It's almost a, an adverse reaction, a kind of, some kind of primal scream. No, to use a, use a word. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I thought that was fascinating that it affected thousands of people, not yeah. not just a handful. Is there any indication of like, I mean, 
that area you described doesn't sound particularly like wealthy but then again it's not wartime is there was there like some big social problem at the time or i don't, I don't know well, it's interesting there was one in Lancashire in England in 2015. I, I can't remember any extreme wars in that part at that time. No, just a particularly stressful cheese. time. Yeah. But it did make me, as I kind of alluded to at the start, it did make me think, you know, as we're in second lockdown now and everybody's kind of feeling the stress of lockdown and the coronavirus and something that we can't control and having our uh, freedoms, you know, contained for for you know logical reasons of mm-hmm. of the virus but if i wonder if there will be incidents of these kind of mass hysteria events within the next year or so or the next couple of years mm. or how long it even takes to come out i don't know mm. yeah no that's really interesting yeah i'm gonna listen out for if i see a nun i'm gonna listen out for meowing <laughs> yeah or laughing even this very short one, this one, but this another more recent one. This is one that happened in Portugal in 2006. Uh, and it's called the Strawberries with Sugar Virus. So uh, in, two th- in 2006, there's a teen drama basically in Portugal. And I'm really, I apologize to anybody who speaks Portuguese for what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, the show is called Morangos com a Cura which is, translates to strawberries with sugar. So in this teen drama, they aired an episode where a virus infects a school. So this is a fictional virus that infects this school. The day after the fictional storyline aired, over 300 students across 14 schools reported similar symptoms to those featured in the drama. Symptoms included rashes, difficulty breathing and dizziness. I was was funny, you know, not without having their fingers on the pulse. Authorities initially didn't make the connection to the TV show, uh, and called the Portuguese National Institute for Medical Emergencies to investigate what was going on. So, if you think about it, you're the authorities in Portugal. One day, loads of students start turning up at all schools across the country, saying, "I've got rash," show, physically having a rash, difficulty breathing, dizziness, and people were like going home from school on this day and they just thought oh my god what's going on as some disease just suddenly spread across mm. uh and this institute the medical emergencies uh institute was called in and they eventually made the connection and concluded the whole incident was a case of mass hysteria caused by the tv show and that everybody who'd watched that or a large group of people who'd watched that tv show had uh somehow <laughs> in their mind, contracted this fictional virus. And did they show symptoms of rashes and things? Yeah, physical. Some people had physical rashes. That's very strange indeed. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, there's that... um, There's a disease that is claimed to be mass hysteria right now. Morgellons disease. All right. Um, and uh, so it's basically when people claim they have Morgellons, um, they say things like they feel like there are insects crawling under their skin. Some of them even report strange colored fibers coming out of their skin. But the. Uh, um, is this also where people have feel they've got an insect in their ear and stuff? Yeah, that's There's right. Kind of yeah. Variations, yeah. But yeah. the official explanation currently from science is that it's delusional. It first reported in the US in 2002. Okay. Um, but there are still people reporting it today. Well, I think what's interesting about the strawberries with sugar virus, I'm not going to attempt the Portuguese name again, um, is it's it's one of the few examples you know we talked about the close-knit community earlier as one of the conditions but obviously this was wasn't a close-knit community in the sense of physically this was the fact that they all watched the same tv program yeah yeah which does make you think in again in the world of coronavirus and the expanse of social media if there are you know social media mass hysteria events 
Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe some have happened that I've missed, but, you know, certainly will be on their way at some point, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If you buy, if you buy that these stories are not paranormal in nature, that they are actually some kind of mass psychology. Well, maybe we'll come on to that at the end because I, I think that's quite interesting. And we talked earlier about these things stopping, and I said there there is an example of uh, ones with quite serious consequences. Um, so let me tell you about this story of mass claimed to be mass hysteria that led to somebody murdering and being charged with killing a ghost. Okay. So this happened uh, in Hammersmith in the London area in 1803. And it started with reports of a ghost was seen in the area of Hammersmith. And these stories started to circulate that there was a ghost wandering around. Um, hysterias took over the neighbourhood, multiple sightings every night. People were seeing this thing every night. Uh, then the reports got more intense, people saying they were attacked by the ghost, physically attacked. Uh, Rumours were circulating that people who saw it would then go home and die in their beds of fright on the night that they'd seen it. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Hammersmith is part of London and there are a lot of people living there even back in 1803 but it's not you know it's not millions of people no and the hysteria just built and built and built and it led to a point where groups of vigilantes started patrolling the streets at night looking for this ghost (laughs) armed they were armed right they had weapons they had guns they had they and they they'd start off as soon as it got dark and they'd patrol the areas in search of this ghost not sure what they were going to do to it or when they found it um and then on the night of the 3rd of january 1804 one of these guys francis smith was patrolling and he saw the apparition and he shot at it and it fell to the ground and he killed it Unfortunately, it wasn't a ghost that he'd shot. It was a local bricklayer called Thomas Millwood who happened to be dressed in the white overalls of his trade. Smith had mistaken him for the ghost and shot him dead. Right. So Uh, (laughs) people are obviously, like, quite trigger-happy. Yeah. Well, but again, it shows how this kind of paranoia had just spread over this area you know, and you mix that in with a ghostly tale and a paranormal tale, it intensified incredibly. Um, Smith was charged with murder, or uh, but pleaded not guilty. Uh, his defence was partly that he thought he wasn't killing a human; he thought he was shooting at a ghost, which is interesting in itself. So we've we've talked before about when I think on the Jeff episode of you know, times where the paranormal has kind of found its way into a courtroom. And this is another one of those. Um, He was convicted of manslaughter, but launched an appeal based on the fact that, hey, I I didn't think I was killing this guy. I thought it was a ghost and I thought my life was in danger. It was self-defense. And he eventually won his appeal. And so what happened to him? He got out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then what happened to the sightings of the ghost? Well, this <laughs> what's really interesting is uh, this whole thing seems to have been bes- sparked by a prank. Uh, there was a shoemaker in the area called John Graham. And he had a number of apprentices who worked for him. Uh, and the, he was upset at them because they told one of his children a scary story about a ghost. And their chi- his child, this John Graham, his child had had kind of many sleepless nights about it. So as a prank, he, over a period of a few nights, dressed up as a ghost and tried to kind of wait for them, like, I don't know, when they came back from the pub or when they were going home from work, to kind of scare them as this ghostly apparition. And that's how the whole thing started. So oh. 
So the thing stopped when the guy was shot and killed and they realised it wasn't a ghost because there'd been a few kind of cases of mistaken identity. And then it, obviously the story of this guy, John Graham, came out that, you know, this whole thing had been kicked off by him dressing up as a ghost as a prank to scare these apprentices that worked for him. And and he came out and admitted this for the court case? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Gosh. It's very Scooby-Doo. It's it's a perfect Scooby-Doo plot, isn't it? But it lasted, you know, what, good, a good few weeks, the whole incident from building up with him kind of dressing up and doing this thing as a joke. And then it just, it quickly spiralled out of control and ended up with somebody being killed. So that's yeah i guess like when i think of um, mass hysteria that is kind of what i think about is um like armed groups looking for something like um the uh the vampire sightings in uh in highgate yes very similar very yeah. similar yeah yeah well i've got another one in that vein which is i mean obviously that was from 1803 1804 there's another one in the UK. Uh, have you heard of the Halifax Slasher? I have not. So this happened in... Sounds uh, like a mortgage, I will say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, people outside the UK won't get that joke, but it is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm taking this from uh, an article in HowStuffWorks.com. Um, so this is the Halifax uh, Slasher. So for nearly two weeks in November 1938, residents living in Halifax, England, were terrorised by a man racing around in the dark, slashing women with a knife or a razor. The panic began on November the 16th when two women arrived at a local police station, both with head wounds that appeared to have been caused by some kind of blade. They'd been attacked by a man, they told police. Five days later, a third woman ran to the police with a deep razor cut in her wrist. In both cases, no evidence was found at the crime scene. Police were stumped and citizens became concerned. Over the next week, more people were mysteriously attacked, all suffering some type of cut. By now, the public was referring to the attacker as the Halifax Slasher, and police said uh, there could be up to three different men who'd been attacking these victims. Businesses shuttered their windows, vigilante groups again formed sometimes attacking men who appeared suspicious or out of place, so very similar to the other story. Law enforcement officials put in a call to Scotland Yard for help and two detectives arrived on November 29th. So this was all going on. So you've got multiple people coming with multiple women, coming with multiple cuts, saying they'd been attacked by this guy. The whole area just goes into freak out with vigilantes and all stuff happening. And then these two, you know, Scotland Yard police officers were sent. Uh, As the investigation began, uh, the investigators started to question the victims. Their stories suddenly collapsed. Suddenly everyone began confessing they'd actually cut or injured themselves. One woman said she fought with her boyfriend and upset sliced her arm because she had heard about the Halifax slasher. After nine, so there were 12 victims in total who came forward who didn't know each other. Uh, Nine of the 12 victims confessed to self-harm and police closed the investigation. All of those nine were charged with criminal offences with four of them going to jail. Gosh. I mean, that is an incredible story. So Which I can't get my head round at all <laughs> no and did they um they presumably found out about it through a newspaper report yeah and well and the fact that it, it, it it's quickly spread amongst the community that something you know there was a guy out there who was i think probably as much by word of mouth maybe as anything else you know um i mean i remember there was i remember some similar type of thing uh, when my daughter was very young at school, that some somebody had said some guy had tried to get their young child into a car and drive off with her, and 
I, 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 it wasn't quite this level of stuff, but I remember it just spread around the community really quickly, as you would expect, and everybody was incredibly concerned. And I don't think it went to the stage of vigilantes patrolling the streets, but I, I remember there was a report of, oh yeah, yeah, this guy was in a BMW car, and you did find yourself any BMW car driving past, you'd have a look and go, oh, is that? Could that? You know what I mean? Yeah, so you can yeah. see how this stuff happens. What I don't get about this one is, you know, the the instances of self-harm, it seems so extreme. And then to go to the police and say you've been attacked and 12 different people doing this is yeah, really strange. It's not, um, it's not completely uncommon, though, is it? Like, one of my favourite cases, which I'd sort of forgotten about temporarily until you mentioned this, was... Um, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Oh, I don't know this. It's exactly the same thing. So um, this all happened in the mid-1940s in Mattoon in Illinois, and multiple people were reporting that um, they called him the anaesthetic prowler, that there they are in their homes at night, and then somebody would come in and put gas into the house and they would report symptoms like paralysis of the legs, coughing, nausea, vomiting. Nobody died and nobody had serious medical uh, complications. Um, but I think what's also interesting about it, as part, apart from like, the, uh, like your slasher one, like the people who are coming forward, um, like the first people to report it, is a Mr. and Mrs. Burt Kearney. And so it's a, it's a couple, it's a married couple. Yeah. Yeah. And like, they're not, um, you know, they don't appear to be the sort of people that when you look behind the case who would make it up, but they even described the gasser and then their description of the gasser, uh, turns into part of the sort of the folklore of it and it spreads and, like nobody was ever found and also the science of it doesn't really work you can't really bring some gas you know you can't turn up at someone's house with enough gas to push in through the kitchen window and to affect them upstairs in the bedroom unless right. it's some sort of military grade gas uh, gas it's interesting well i just think as well with that i think you know, the halifax slasher one I think it's alluded to here where at one stage the police thought it was three different attackers because I guess they were following the evidence and it just didn't yeah, yeah. stack up, right? It didn't stack up. Again, thinking back to, okay, what was going on around that time? So 1938, something about, you know, that time which we talked about with Christopher Joseph with Jeff, the Jeff story, you know, you've got, you know the 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 in between the wars you've got the rise of fascism you've got all that stuff does that all kind of feel you know is that the trigger that makes this stuff happen but it it seems a weird expression of that kind of stress and pressure yeah it does yeah well those are i mean i'm sorry what i also think is terrible about terrible about it is you know it shows how thankfully things have slightly improved that you know, these women coming forward who self-harmed, you know, four of them ended up in prison. Mm. You know what I mean? You, yeah, you, yeah. You, you go, God, you just don't work out what's going on in their head and give them some sympathy rather than put them away. But I know it's yeah. a very different time, but incredible. Yeah. Well, I wonder, like, but all of those, those things, it's like um, it's all people having an, an affliction, isn't it? Or... There's a common enemy. There's something. There's something sort of deeply psychological about it. Yeah. Um, and I was going to at the beginning bring up and say, um, is it a bit like perhaps the Pied Piper? But actually, now I've thought about it, it actually is like the Pied Piper because the Pied Piper is your slasher, is your gasser, yeah. Yeah. is 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 your meow from the nun. It's the same. It's just a, it's another personification of it. Yeah, I mean, I can see you know if you if we go back to the the Hammersmith one with the ghost, you could see actually 
there might be a mixture of kind of perverse excitement amongst the community of mm. the whole thing because it's a ghost it's you know it's not like i don't know there's something about it that's etherealness of it could create a almost a, a weird pleasure effect in the excitement of the whole thing mm. the halifax slasher doesn't kind of read that way to me it doesn't feel quite the same which kind of no. struck me as strange yeah no agreed so the um when the like people commentate on this is there ever a consensus like is there a diagnosis that you've come across can you because a lot of the time it just seems like somebody goes well you're delusional yeah. and they go no i'm not unless unless there's a confession like there is in the case of the, the slasher yeah i would say I, I mean i was thinking about that a lot and you know i i did do a fair bit of research to find stuff maybe i've not researched deeply enough what, what i concluded from it is if it is some kind of psychological group psychological disorder the problem with it is it's really hard to investigate and analyze it because they're mm. so rare mm. Mm. you know and they and they're and they're a lot you know you can see the stories a lot of these go back a long way so you know, you'd have to, you'd almost, I would imagine, to really understand it if it is a psychological thing, um, is you'd have to almost kind of investigate it scientifically with it happening. And they do happen incredibly rarely. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, I, let me let me do the final story that mm. I've got because this is this is the one that is just so bizarre and it it's an old story again it's from uh, it happened in fifteen eighteen but it's a well documented case uh, and again I'm reading this one from an article this is the town that danced itself to death so this was an article by Evan Andrews uh, history dot com. And this story is absolutely bonkers. So in July 1518, residents of the city of Strasbourg, then part of the Holy Roman Empire, were struck by a sudden and seemingly uncontrollable urge to dance. The hysteria kicked off with a woman known as Frau Trofo stepped into the street and began to silently twist, twirl and shake. She kept up her solo dance-a-thon for nearly a week. And before long, some three dozen other residents had joined in. So by August, a month later, the dancing epidemic had claimed as many as 400 victims. With no other explanation for the phenomenon, local physicians blamed it on hot blood and suggested the afflicted simply gyrate the fever away. This is where it gets crazy. <laughs> a, st a stage was constructed. They constructed a stage and professional dancers were brought in. The town even hired a band to provide backing music, but it wasn't long before the marathon started to take its toll. Many dancers collapsed with sheer exhaustion. Some even died from strokes and heart attacks. The strange episode didn't end until September, when the dancers were whisked away to a mountaintop shrine to pray for absolution. The Strasbourg dancing plague might sound like the stuff of legend, but it's well documented in 16th century historical records. It's not the only incident of its kind. Similar manias took place in Switzerland, Germany and Holland, though few were as large or as deadly as the one triggered in 1518. What could have led people to dance themselves to death? According to historian John Waller, the explanation most likely concerns St Vitus, a Catholic saint whose pious 16th century Europeans believed had the power to curse people with the dancing plague. We combined with the horrors of disease and famine, both of which were tearing Strasbourg in the 1580s, the St Vitus superstition may have triggered a stress incident, a hysteria that took hold of the city. Other theories have suggested the dancers were members of a religious cult or even that they were accidentally ingested uh, a toxic mould that grows on damp rye and produces spasms and hallucinations. 
that has been blamed for other things as well, hasn't it? It gives you like an LSD kind of yeah. effect. But again, I think it seems odd that that would just suddenly appear and wouldn't be a known thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. But I have heard explanations of that being like a um, a wet summer and the mold formed and stuff. But you're right, it doesn't seem very... It doesn't seem seem like a reasonable explanation, particularly as everybody is engaged in the same thing. Yeah, I mean, me and you went some some good raves in the eighties. Yeah, but that's that's hardcore. Yeah, I mean, like a few hours of that, and you you need to have a shower and get some sleep. I mean, I mean, weeks. It went on for weeks. Yeah, I mean, I. That is a particularly strange one. It wasn't the also a suggestion that it was caused by a spider bite. Oh, I hadn't I hadn't read that. No, I didn't know that. Um, I think that might have just been a local theory at the time. Right. I seem to remember from the back of my my mind, but it, it's clear that people were grasping at um, straws to try and find something. And I'm not familiar with what happened at the end when they were taken to this um, place to sort of work out have a word with themselves yeah what happened yeah i think the whole thing just fizzled out from there it just went away as far as i know um but yeah the, but there are examples of other places that had it but not as bad as that i mean what amazed me when i i thought about doing this episode was there was a bit of me that would go it's just this mass hysteria thing. Describing it as mass hysteria is just... It's a lame sceptic's way of writing off these strange paranormal things that happened. That was yeah. my kind of intention, as I think I talked about at the start. Yeah. But the more I delved into it, the more it you kind of go, well, there are some kind of key themes that seem to run through all of them, which do suggest that there could be something mass psychologically going on, which I thought was quite fascinating for me. Mm. Yeah. Uh, like you say, until you get um, a case you can study and then the right people to study it, you'll never yeah. know. You'll never know. Like I, I read last week that apparently we've only just discovered another organ in the human body behind the soft palate. Oh, and, really? Yeah, you would think. <laughs> well, how like, does that happen? Exactly, exactly. But um, so it's not surprising that we haven't been able to put a medical sort of set of terms around this. <laughs> although, although I forever managed to find a pound coin down the back of the sofa. They seem to they seem to breed. I don't know how <laughs> that works. Maybe it's collected. Um, <laughs> but if you look at all of these. You know, there are a lot of key things. The one that I've, that really, the Mothman stands out for me, and I don't know yeah. if that's just because of the way it ended. Yes. That, which is either the kind of crazy coincidence that makes, you know, the bridge collapsing, this crazy coincidence that tied the whole thing together in some bizarre coincidental way. You know, if it was a mass hysteria event, it wasn't a mass hysteria event that caused the bridge to collapse. Oh, yes, of course, yes, yes. But um, then if that is a coincidence, it's just a reinforcer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the other one is the, the Halifax Slasher one. You know, the... I wondered what Howard was up to. <laughs> yeah. But it... <laughs> other mortgage providers are available. Um yeah but that that's that's a bizarre one to me because it just seems it seems so random you could see how the other ones developed you know the teen drama in portugal i could see how that happened yeah the the hammersmith one where the guy killed the ghost you could see like i said you could see how those group community events could take place mm-hmm some of the earlier ones seem weirder, but then it's hard to know because, you, you know, as we said before, over time stories get exaggerated or changed. So, 
Yeah, yeah. Particularly if um, the construct of all of the stories that we've spoken about is almost that there's a there's a goodie and a baddie, or there is an affection and a yeah. a victim. And um, if if you are the perceived victim, you're always going to try and sort of portray yourself in a in a really good light. So that's also going to twist whatever yeah. stories come through. Yeah, but as I said, I think I'd I'd gone from putting this episode together, going mass hysteria event, really can you know convenient excuse for people to throw out there to dismiss these paranormal stuff that's going on. But on balance with a lot of these stories, I've kind of ended up going, wow, it is a thing. I yeah. Think that's where I'd, I'd say I've ended up. Yeah. So I'm trying to think if there's anything in the modern world which reminds me of this, but there isn't. There isn't really like I think all schools go through that um thing of sending home a letter with their kids saying, Oh, beware of drug dealers giving away free sweets and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And that I know that happens today and that happened when I was at school um, you know, forty years ago. And that it's not quite mass hysteria. That's more urban legendary, I think. Yeah. But what surprised me with a lot of them was it It wasn't just seeing something. It was actually experiencing yeah. something and, and, and uh, showing behavior, you know, meowing, laughing, real physical, having a physical rash, you know. That's very... It's different to what you're talking about. You know, you could say the Mothman one is a bit like what you're talking about and certainly the the ghost in Hammersmith. So some of them are like that. But, you know, people dancing themselves to death or laughing, thousands of people laughing and schools having to be closed and stuff like that. It's, it was bizarrer than I was expecting it to be, Mass Hysteria. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, all of those things sound a bit like bears. Yeah, so. that's, that's true. It's all to do with Bez. He, he, he was probably yeah, He was probably there. And Oakenfold was DJing at that thing in fifteen. Was it fifteen hundred? Um, fifteen eighteen, just after 15, quarter past three. Fifteen, yeah, fifteen eighteen. There you go. Um, <laughs> so oh, I I've, don't know what I don't know what to make of it. It's made me a little discombobulated, to be honest. I I really like it, but I think it just proves that um, there's more to the psychology of people than meets the eye. And that's why it makes anybody interested in the paranormal sort of um, get, get struggle with it a bit more. Because even if 20 people have a sighting of a Bigfoot, yeah. how, how can you be sure that it's not mass hysteria? You just can't. Yeah. But I guess the only thing that gives me comfort on that and maybe is something to reference back when you look at those events are those five the guides the five principles you know yeah it can't be explained by a physical illness i'll just read in them it affects people who wouldn't normally behave in that way uh it excludes people who are gathered for that purpose who are searching that answer uh it doesn't include fads and crazes. I'm, I'm really kind of simplifying these. Yeah, um, yeah. And there has got to be some kind of community thing that knits them together. They're almost good principles if we look at, like, a, I don't know, like a UFO sighting or things, all those things where it's more than one person or more mm. than a couple of people. Well, does it tick these boxes? Because... Maybe that's the key of whether where there is something else going on rather than yeah. a mass hysteria event. Well, actually, that you could apply all of those terms to the Highgate Vampire because everybody that claimed to see it could never show anybody that went to try and find it. Right, and and it was the cemetery was staked out by newspaper reporters, yeah. um, and yet people would go, "Yeah, no, I see it. I see it really often." 
And yeah, that that does tick all of those five principles. Yeah. Interesting indeed. I I like it a lot. Well, I mean, let's let's. Uh, as I said, I think there are a lot of the conditions there for um, potentially a mass hysteria event that gets triggered from us all being in lockdown and coronavirus. So let's fingers crossed hope that we don't all start meowing like cats. Yeah, or maybe we'll find out that cats actually speak French and they're in a mass hysteria case just for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or maybe, yeah, or we'll all end up in a kind of local town just dancing ourselves to death at the end of lockdown. Yes. Oh, I should say, uh, for anybody who's listened to the uh, October uh, Halloween episode, I did last weekend drive down two of the roads that we spoke about. The the oh, road yeah. the road with the naked ghost and the road with black stockings. I thought they'd be the two. I took a detour to go down those. Nice. Any joy? I'm afraid not. I was really hoping I'd see black stockings and then I'd be able to take them for the naked man. And we'd get like a Rocky Horror Show kind of ghost remix, but um, yeah, yeah. but yeah, no, I didn't see anything. Sadly, it wasn't wasn't it wasn't on Halloween. You drove down there, so no, it wouldn't be. No, it. no, that's right. No. Although, um, if we're going to create a mass hysteria event, why don't we do the 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 kind of ghostly figure of Brian May? That'd be that'd be one that could cheer everyone up because he could play a song as well. Oh yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. So this makes no sense if you've not listened to a Halloween special, but if you haven't, why haven't you? It's fantastic. Yes, tell your friends. Yeah. Well, I'm... I am... I can't think of how to close this episode. (laughs) Well, I'll say we've managed to do another episode, but uh, for once not mention Chaz and Dave. the quantum mechanics.